You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray and begin to look at God's Word and we'll ask His blessing on our time together. Father, we ask that You would manifest Yourself to us now through Your Word, for Your own glory, for Your own sake, that we may see and hear things that we need to change and areas in which we need to improve and ways in which we can pursue Christ. We thank You that we have Your Holy Word and we come before it now bowing ourselves before You and ask that we would be transformed by the sanctifying truth of Your Word For Jesus' sake and in His name we ask this. Amen. Well, we are in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to begin looking at verse 17, and we're going to get as far as verse 18 today, and we will save verse 19 for next week. But we are going to be looking at verse 17 and 18, and I want you just to read those over again with me. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Every parent here knows the reality of, of the benefit of having a good role model for your kids. And as we have spent time in the book of Philippians, we have seen on a couple of different occasions how the Apostle Paul has spoken of the necessity of having good role models to follow. And now in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, we actually get two sides of this whole role model idea, that we are to have good role models to follow, but we are also to avoid bad role models. And every parent worth his or her salt knows or can at least understand the concern that the Apostle Paul expresses in these verses toward those that he loves. Only a pathetic loser of a parent gives no concern to the people that their kids hang around with. you agree with that? I want my children to be able to hang around with children who are positive influences and people who are good influences. And I'm always monitoring to make sure that the things that are held up as role models in my home are good role models and not just your average athlete or your average rock star or your average person on the screen or a film or a cartoon character or something, a superhero. I want good role models for my kids. That's what Paul wants for the Philippians and Corinth. As human beings, it seems that there is something wired into our hard wiring that makes us want to mimic people. From the moment of our birth, it seems, we want to be like someone or something else. We see mommy and daddy do something and we mimic that, whether it's a laugh or a gesture or a word or something else. We are born imitators. All of you imitate everybody that you've been around or some element of that. What you are is the result of those whom you have imitated basically your whole life. Do you ever wonder why you speak the way you do without the southern dialect, with the exception of Chad Nicky? There's not, not here. Have you ever wondered why you speak without the southern dialect? And, oh, sorry, there's a couple others here that have southern dialect. It's because you have learned to imitate those who speak around you. And, don't say this to Chad Nicky, but if, if you notice their kids are not taking their accent, You notice that? Why is that? Because they're learning to mimic the people around them. That's how we learn to talk. That's how we learn to walk. That's how we learn our gestures. That's how we learn our mannerisms. 
I see things in my kids that I think that's more than just genetic. They're mimicking something that they see. We are born imitators. Well, Paul wants us, in a spiritual sense, to imitate those who are good role models spiritually. So we're going to be looking at that, and we're going to, what we're talking about in recent weeks is the whole idea of maturing in our faith and what is required and what is necessary for us to mature in our faith. We want to be mature Christians. We want to be grown-ups. We want to be adults, spiritually speaking. We want to be able to discern good from evil, right from wrong, um, good and bad. We want to be able to discern the difference between light and darkness, and we want to be consistent, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, be grown-ups in the faith. That's our desire. That is the goal. And so how is it that we do that? And Paul's been talking about his Christ-centered ambition. You remember he used the athletic metaphor. I run like a runner. I'm pursuing a prize. The prize is Christ-likeness. And it's okay for us to be told, here's the prize and here's how we run for it and here's how we pursue it. But then we get down to verses 17 and 18 and 19 and there's just two very practical, very general, very simple principles. And it's this. First of all, you have to take heed to your walk. That's verse 17. And then you have to take heed to a warning. And that's verse 18. Verse 17 tells us who we are to follow after. And verses 18 and 19 tell us who we are to avoid. So if I can have both sides of it, we're going to look at both sides. Who do we follow after, taking heed to our walk? And who do I avoid? And that's taking heed to a warning. You are to go after certain men and you are to avoid at all costs other types of men. And that's the two types of men that are described in this passage. So let's begin with verse 17, taking heed to our walk. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He begins with that word brethren. You've seen it repeated throughout chapter 3, begins with brethren, verse 1. You see it here in verse 17. If you look down to chapter 4, verse 1, you see the, the almost gushy sentimentality of chapter 4, verse 1, the beloved brethren. I see Paul repeating that throughout Philippians chapter 3 and 4. And why do you think that might be? He has been telling them some very difficult things. Brethren, avoid the evil workers, the false teachers, the false circumcision. Then he tells them some very strong things about pursuing Christ and what their responsibility should be and what their perspective should be and their mindset should be. And throughout this whole passage, by the way, he's leading up to some more strong things in chapter 4. And I think periodically the Apostle Paul wants to warn, uh, remind them Look, I'm saying this out of love. I do love you. I'm not trying to guilt you into being a Christian like me. I'm not trying to make myself look out. I'm on a pedestal above you. I want you to understand that we are brethren. So there's this repeated expression of love that the Apostle Paul does. Whenever you say hard words to somebody, it's always good to sort of wrap them in love. You realize that, don't you? Speak the truth in love. If you're going to speak the truth, at least least let people know that you love them. So wrap it in love so that they understand that. That's what Paul's doing. The velvet glove, so to speak. All of chapter 3 is kind of the iron fist, and the the brethren is the reminder that I'm doing this out of love, and I want you guys to know that what I'm telling you may be hard, but this is the loving thing for me to do and to remind you of these things. So brethren, Paul says, join in following my example. That word join in following my example is all the translation of one Greek word, sum mimites. This is the only place in all of the Bible that it appears This is the only place in all of known Greek literature that it appears. Nowhere else inside the New Testament or outside of our Bible in any Greek literature do we ever run across this word. The root of the word mimetes means to mimic. Can you see the similarities? Mimetes and mimic, how our word might have come from that. We are to mimic or we are to imitate. And Paul uses that word throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, 
Join in following my example. Be imitators of me as I, as I am of Christ. But nowhere else in all of Greek literature do we have that little word stuck on at the beginning, sum, which means together. And some people look at that, and since we don't, we don't have this word used in other contexts, so it's very difficult to understand what exactly did the Apostle Paul have in mind. And some have suggested, well, the prefix sum has no significance whatsoever. It's just kind of attached to the front of it. Which I think is odd that Paul would use a word that's not used anywhere else to communicate an idea when it doesn't have any significance. Some would say what he's saying is that though they need to join with other Christians in imitating his example. But I think something more profound is being said with sum mimites. Together, mimic. And I think what the Apostle Paul is driving at is corporately as a body, you are to join together to imitate me. This is a corporate endeavor. It's not just individual. It's not enough for just a few selected individuals in our congregation to say, I want to be like Christ, so I'm going to pursue this. And Paul is reminding them, in pursuing this, you ought to follow my example, but I want the entire church to do it together. There's unity in this. There's strength in numbers, and there's power in doing things corporately as a church. What kind of a church would we be if all of us were following a different path, a different agenda, trying to be like somebody else? And none of us were together on anything. What could be accomplished? Absolutely nothing would be accomplished. This would be the most carnal, ungodly, worldly bunch of, of powerless spiritual midgets that the world has ever seen, if that's what we were to do, if all of us were to pursue some different agenda. But Paul wants the entire Christian community to join together with one vision and one purpose, and that is to imitate him as he follows hard after Jesus Christ. As a group, it is easier for us to hold one another accountable and to ask each other how that's going and to begin to feed each other and support each other as we all progress in one direction. By the way, that's biblical Christian unity. Some people think unity is all of us looking alike, smelling alike, dressing alike, combing our hair alike, driving the same types of cars, eating the same types of food. Some people think that Christian unity is all of us having an outward show that, yeah, we all agree on everything and we're all happy together, or that unity is simply doing away with denominational barriers or doing away with the doctrinal distinctives that divide us. That's not unity, that's uniformity. Unity is all of us pursuing hard after Christ together. Let me be frank with you. I don't care what your perspective on baptism is, the timing or the nature or the manner. I don't care what your view of the millennium is, whether you think it's pre, post, or mid-trib, or if you, no, not mid-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, or amillennial. I don't care what your view of the tribulation is. I don't care what your view of the covenants are. I don't care what your perspective is on the rapture. I don't care about any of those non-essentials. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are together with me pursuing hard after Christ, I'm linking arms with you, and I'm all the way there with you. Because that is the thing that unifies people. It's not all of the other things. The Bible never commands us to have uniformity. Commands us to have unity. Unity in what? Unity in following hard after Christ. Now, if you want to follow hard after Christ and argue with me about the millennium, I'm fine with that. I don't enjoy, I enjoy good theological discussions. But you and I are still pursuing the same goal in unity. This applies to a lot of other things too that you may think are debatable issues and genuinely would be debatable issues. Something comes up at this point, and I'm taking a hard turn on another subject at this this juncture, but the question would come up, does this at all sound to you, what Paul has said, like a humble statement? Join together 
in following after me, in imitating my example. Is that really consistent with genuine Christian humility? If I said to you, you want to be Christ-like, imitate me. Would that strike you as odd at all? I would hope it would strike you as odd. Does this in keeping with genuine Christian humility? You want to be with like Christ? Then be just like me. It kind of struck me as that. So I started doing some thinking about it, and I thought it could be out of keeping with Christian humility until we put a few other thoughts into the mix. And here are the few other thoughts I want you to keep in your mind as you read this. It is a very humble statement, but here's why. First of all, the Apostle Paul has already told us back in chapter 2 that it's Jesus Christ who is the ultimate example of holiness and the mind of Christ that he's talking about. He's already pointed us to Christ. Second of all, the Apostle Paul has already, even in this chapter in verse 12, said, I am not the standard of perfection because I have not arrived there yet. So he's not putting himself on a pedestal and saying, look to me and model yourself after me. What he is doing is he's saying, I have not arrived at any plateau of perfection. I have not arrived where I ought to be, but I am pursuing what I should be. And he knew himself well enough to know that what he is... What he's after for us is that we follow him in his pursuit, not that we see him as the ultimate object of perfection or standard of perfection. And third, the Apostle Paul, you'll notice in the rest of verse 17, says, join with those or mark those who walk according to the pattern you've had in us. He didn't view just himself as somebody worthy of emulation, but he viewed himself as one of a very large group of people who were worthy of being a role model. So it is a very humble statement. It is in keeping with Christian humility because what the Apostle Paul is not, he's not saying be perfect like I'm perfect. He's saying pursue Christ like I pursue Christ. In other words, it's not the perfection that he's asking us to pursue. Sorry, it's not the perfection that he is asking us to imitate. It is the pursuit of Christ-likeness that he wants us to imitate. So he says, mark those, that is take note of those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. I think the Apostle Paul was a great example. And you know why I think he was a great example? I think Paul was a great example because he was not perfect. Now I ask you this, what kind of an example would Paul be to you if he were perfect? And and on another note, you realize that Jesus is not our example of pursuing perfection. He was perfect. He's not an example to us of what it means to pursue Christ-likeness. He didn't pursue that. He had that. He had that when He existed in the form of God. He was perfect when He came here. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, made a perfect resurrection and a perfect ascension, and He is perfect in heaven. He has always been and always will be perfect. He's not an example to us of what it means to pursue perfection. But Paul is. And what you and I desperately need is an example of somebody who is imperfect but had to deal with his imperfections. We need the examples like Paul in Romans 7. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I want to do, I don't have the power to do them. That's the type of example I want. I want an example of somebody who learned to crucify his flesh, die to himself, deal with pride, deal with hurt, deal with disappointment, resist temptation. That's the type of example that we need, isn't it? That's what Paul was. And so he can say to you, This is the path of my Christian life and this is what I'm asking you to pursue. Imitate me in my pursuit of this and not just me, but all of those who walk the same way that I walk. 
pursue those or mark those, he said. It means to keep your eye on it. It's the same word used of the gold up in chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, I look forward to the goal. The goal was that which you kept your eye on. Here he uses the verb form, keep your eye on this. By the way, you've got a lot of things to keep your eyes on, don't you? You've got to keep your eye on Christ. You've got to keep your eye on a goal. You've got to keep your eye on somebody else who's running well so that you can follow after them. A lot of things to keep our eyes on. And Paul wants us to keep our eyes on men like him to imitate that. So that they can be role models. Mark those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Periodically in Scripture, we see Paul and Peter even talk about leaders in the church being a good example to the flock. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love and faith and purity, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. To the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says you are to be good examples to the flock. So that instruction is given to those who aspire to positions of leadership in the church to live as a good role model and to be an example to others who are in the flock. And then here we have the flip side of that coin, a command to the flock to look up to those who are good examples and to imitate them. So that's the walk that we are to take heed to. Now I want you to look at the warning that he gives us in verse 18 of the men to stay away from. Verse 18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. The scariest part about that verse is the word many. Many walk. Not according to the pattern you have in us, but according to something else, and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Have you ever noticed that it is far easier to find a bad role model than a good role model? Have you ever noticed that? And media makes it even worse because all the bad role models are put up in front of us and paraded before our eyes and paraded in front of our ears or in our ears constantly and we're constantly being bombarded by poor role models. There are many of them. And often, and this is sad, the situation is not any better in the church than it is in the world. As elders, we have people who come to us who don't attend this church, so don't try and guess any names. People who come to us and they say, we want to pull our son or our daughter or our children out of such and such a youth ministry and we want to bring them to Kootenai and put them in your guys' youth program. And so we start asking questions. Why is that? Well, because our youth leader is doing this and the other kids are doing that and there's all of these influences. And uh, so we just want to bring them over here on Wednesday nights instead of taking them to our church on Friday nights or Tuesday nights or whatever it is. And we want you guys to have our... our Teens, and you know what our response to that is? Don't want them. Don't want them. What's, you start asking them questions, you know what the problem is? In their whole body, there's nobody worthy of being a role model. Leader, youth leader, other teens, not, there's nobody to look up to. And so then I ask them, why are you going to that church? Well, we like the music. The parking is easy. It's air-conditioned, and you guys aren't. There are a hundred other excuses. We're not interested in that at all. The real issue is get your entire family somewhere where you have good role models to follow for your kids and point your kids to those role models. Because we're not going to be able to solve anything on an hour on a Wednesday night, twice a month. This is not going to happen. Can't do anything for you. I'm not about to lead that rescue operation. The warning is there are many, many who walk not according to that pattern. It should stun us. Verse 18 says, of whom, Paul says, I have often warned you. I've often warned you. Up in chapter 3, 
verse 1. Look at what Paul says in 3 verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, and to write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, but it's a safeguard to you. One thing I noticed in going through this is that Paul's warnings about false teachers, which he's about to describe, false teachers and false Christians, they were repetitive warnings. They were persistent warnings. They were warnings that he did over and over and over again. And he says here in chapter 3, verse 18, I have often told you about this. When he was in Philippi, he told them. When he visited Philippi again, he told them. Every time he wrote them, he warned them. Read through the pastoral epistles. Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And you know what you'll see? Warning after warning after warning after warning. Just highlight the warnings. It's paragraph after paragraph. Whole books like Galatians, sometimes entire chapters. And you got to ask yourself, how often and how much did the Apostle Paul warn people? To the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I did not cease to warn you day and night for three years with tears. Sometimes as elders, we have this discussion from time to time, sometimes as elders, we feel like broken records. Because I'm always warning you about the emergent church and modern-day Gnosticism and Judaism and postmodernism and Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and modern-day legalism and liberalism and Gnosticism and open theism and all of the other isms, and I could go on with a whole list of isms, and it seems repetitive and repetitive over and over. We cover it in Sunday school. You mention it in church. Jim, we get the idea. But I realize the repetitive warnings is a safeguard for you, and I don't really mind doing it. And if something is worth being warned about once, it's worth being warned about a thousand times so that you constantly hear the warning. And just about the time I be, sound, think I'm sounding like a broken record, I say to myself, I haven't even come close to night and day for three years with tears yet. So I think I'm all right doing what, I'm, what we're doing. It's necessary and a loving thing to warn people about danger and about doctrinal error. And look what Paul says. I've warned you, even now weeping, Kleo is the word. It means a loud, painful lament. And this is the only place in all of the Bible where the Apostle Paul uses the term weeping in the present tense. Even now, he says, I am weeping. Can you imagine him beginning chapter 3? Brethren, beware of the false teachers. and starting to well up. Brethren, beware of the evil dogs. Beware of the circumcision. And then as he warns them about the danger of following after those moralistic dogs and why his own example overthrows their entire lifestyle and then getting down to his pursuit of Christ and he gets ready to warn them again about this other group of people, he says to them, I'm writing to you now even weeping. And I can picture in my mind the Apostle Paul with his pen in his hand and tears in his eyes. Because you know what vexed him? What vexed him was the thought that there were Christians in Philippi who would be deceived by false teachers. And he was willing to weep. What causes you to weep? Show me somebody who is so passionately committed to the truth and the glory of God that when error begins to overshadow truth in somebody's life, that they weep. And I'll show you a rare person. Do you know what typically happens in churches? The sheep roll over and expose their bellies and their throats to the false teachers. And then along comes a shepherd to try and beat off the wolves in sheep's clothing. And the sheep defend the wolf and say, you're unloving, you're critical, you're a nitpicking, doctrinal nitpicker. It's redundant, I know. But you're a, a doctrinal nitpicker. And who are you to say he's wrong? Who are you to judge? 
and they defend the wolf who wants to devour them spiritually and attack the shepherd who's trying to beat off the wolf. I've had people defend Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, and the list could go on. When you try and point out to them, these men are heretics, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, and they get mad at you. Who are you to name my favorite author? Sorry, but that's the loving thing to do, is it not? And that's why Paul was weeping. And he writes to them and he said, I want to warn you about these men, and I do so with tears in my eyes. He was a very emotional, very passionate man. The end of verse 18, Paul says, And now I tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Here's the question we've got to answer. We have to give some attention to this. Who are these men? What type of men were they? In recent weeks as we've been going through Philippians chapter 3, I should should rephrase that. In recent years as we've been in Philippians chapter 3, I have been reading over and over again this chapter. And I start at verse 2 and I get to the end of the chapter. And I always see that warning of the false teachers in verse 2 and this warning in 17 and 18 and 19. And I just equated the two in my mind. I thought that he's picking up the same, the same Judaizing um, false teachers, the legalists that he has in mind in verse 2. He's addressing them again down at the bottom of this passage. But studying through this, looking at verse 19, going through it, I've come to the conclusion, this is not the same group. This is a different group. And you know why I say it's a different group? If you look in verse 19 at the description of these men, there are descriptions there that do not describe a Judaizer. They do not describe a legalist, one of these false circumcisers. These men who thought that all of their deeds of righteousness earned them salvation and they thought they were, had been morally perfected. Because Paul in verse 18, or verse 19 describes those whose God is their appetite and whose glory in shameful things. In other words, these are not legalists, these are libertinists. These are people who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness. These are people who use grace as an excuse to pursue their fleshly desires and indulge them. And maybe they were the opposite of the Judaizers in verse 2. And they said, hey, since we're not under the law, then there's no moral obligation to us as Christians and we can just simply live however we want. And God's okay with that. So since the law has been done away with, there's no restrictions. And these guys went to the opposite extreme. It doesn't seem to describe Judaizers. What the Apostle Paul is describing at the end of the chapter, chapter is those who gloatingly and willingly indulge all of their fleshly appetites. But here's the key. All the while, they are professing to be Christians. That's what made Paul weep. Nowhere, anywhere else in the New Testament will you ever read about the Apostle Paul weeping over the moral sin of unbelievers. It was not their morality that made Paul weep. Sinners sin. Have you noticed that? Pagans, I expect pagans to act like pagans. I expect people who are in bondage to sin and cannot get out of it to follow a path of sin. It doesn't surprise me at all when sinners sin. I don't think it surprised Paul at all when sinners sin. But when people who claim to be Christians take the grace of God and turn it into an excuse for licentiousness, then they present a danger to the body of Christ, and those are the men that Paul is addressing. These are men who indulge their appetites and who pursue every fleshly course And thus they pose a danger and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And listen to this. You do not have to believe heresy to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. You just have to live heresy to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. If you preach against the cross, 
as not being sufficient, not being necessary, not being complete, then you are doctrinally an enemy of the cross of Christ. But if you repudiate with your lifestyle all that the cross stands for, you prove yourself morally to be an enemy of the cross of Christ because you are repudiating the judgment on sin. In On that tree, He hung and bore our sins. And I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I'm alive to God and dead to sin. And when I live in a way that is inconsistent like that, and I indulge my sin, and I justify and rationalize it, and excuse it, and put it off, and live licentiously, I make myself an enemy of the cross of Christ in my conduct. And I show, listen, no enemy of the cross will ever inherit the kingdom of God. No drunkard, no reviler, no fornicator, no adulterer, no effeminate, no homosexual. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they have to be changed from those things into a child of God before they can inherit the kingdom of God. And they'll no longer be effeminate and homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and liars, drunkards, thieves, swindlers and gossips. No enemy of the cross will get into the kingdom. And the reality is that in Philippi, just as today, there are men and women who profess to be Christians who repudiate the cross and all that it stands for through their lives. Doctrinally, they are sound. Listen, I have met men. I wish all of you could sit in on some of my counseling sessions. Most of them you don't have any idea about the people that I I contact with because they're not even here. So I can use them as illustration. By the way, I very seldom, unless I name a name, use somebody here as an illustration, just so you know. But I have sat down with men and women who could affirm every sound doctrine that you could name off the top of your head. They would affirm every jot, every tittle of the doctrinal statement of this church. They could affirm that they believe every orthodox creed that Christianity has ever produced. Doctrinally, they are rock solid. Doctrinally, there is nothing wrong. But morally, their life is a shipwreck. That is the type of men that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. There are two dangers addressed in Philippians chapter 3. The first is in verse 2. Those men who morally, they're impeccable. Righteousness, morality, moralism, goodness on the outside, everything you would look to and say, oh, what a fine, moral, upright, righteous example of a human being. But Paul says they are doctrinally deficient because they deny the saving necessity of the cross and they take away from the righteousness of God. Morally perfect, so to speak, outwardly speaking, doctrinally a shipwreck. Then there's the opposite danger at the bottom of chapter 3. It is those who are doctrinally perfect, doctrinally orthodox, who are moral shipwrecks. And Paul says you need to avoid such men. We're going to stop there because I can't get into verse 19 with you. We will pick up 19 and we're going to look next week at those four, those four descriptions of this group of men. And it is really revealing and we're going to pull together what the New Testament says about such people next week. So let's close our Bibles and we'll pray together. Father, we are grateful to You that You have saved us out of a lifestyle of sin and You have freed us not only from the guilt, but the condemnation, the wrath of our God through Jesus Christ. We thank You that we can come to You with full assurance that You receive the penitent, humble, and repentant sinner and that You give us the grace to honor and glorify You. Lord, may You use these words and this text and these reminders today to remind us of the importance of following after those who are worth mimicking. 
And God, give us grace and raise up people of grace to warn us about those we ought to stay away from. We ask this to your glory and our protection in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.